Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Andrew Deemer, author of The Politics of Black Citizenship. Andrew Deemer, author of The Politics of Black Citizenship, Free African Americans in the Mid-Atlantic Borderlands. What got you interested in this subject? So uh, it sort of came to me gradually. It was not something that I set out to write about. I was much more interested, or I, I thought that I was interested in uh, general political questions, the kind of traditional political questions of the antebellum period. Um, but as I was working on this period and working on some of these issues, I kept finding that African Americans were playing this fascinating role, uh, free African Americans, and, and I was increasingly drawn toward them, uh, this group of people who, uh, who are, certainly in the places that I'm studying in the book, are formally excluded from the political process, and yet are constantly looking for opportunities to play some kind of role in shaping that political process. Well, your, your title uh, highlights the word citizenship. So what did it mean for black citizenship? What, as a free African-American in Pennsylvania and, and Maryland, could you or could you not do? So that's a complicated question. And it certainly is the case that citizenship was understood differently in the 19th century, certainly the early 19th century, than it's understood today. Um, we tend today, living in a post-Reconstruction era, post-14th Amendment era, we think of citizenship as this national category, as this thing that we have as citizens of the nation, and, and therefore um, the rights of citizenship flow from that national citizenship. But this wasn't the way that um, that citizenship was understood. In fact, you know, the Constitution says very little about citizenship. It uses the word citizenship, but it doesn't really define what that means, and it certainly doesn't create um, some sort of apparatus for enforcing what those citizenship rights are. So it was really left to the states uh, primarily, but also to local government to decide what these citizenship rights were. So um, it certainly is different in Maryland and Pennsylvania, and even in a place like Pennsylvania, it's not entirely clear. There are, there are real disagreements about what those rights are. Um, in an abstract sense, one has, African Americans had the right to equal protection of the law. Um, what that meant in reality, of course, was complicated because all sorts of different levels of government are enforcing that equal protection. And so it's really something that is um, argued about and yet there's no, clear or there's no clear agreement on what exactly it means. Um, certainly it didn't mean voting. Uh, it didn't mean voting in either of these places, not in Maryland at all during this period. In, in Pennsylvania, it seems clear that in some places African Americans could vote depending on their jurisdiction, depending on um, what the kind of tradition was in these jurisdictions. In Philadelphia, almost certainly it was not the case. And it was not the case by law, but it was a case by custom and by the way that the elections were sort of organized. Oh, it was not the case by law. It didn't say no. Yeah, so um, it's not until 1838, and that's you know I talk about this in the book. 
1838, there's a constitutional convention where Pennsylvania rewrites their state constitution and um, explicitly makes voting a white privilege. Uh, explicitly says African Americans cannot be voters in Pennsylvania. Um, part of the argument for that is that the, the advocates for disfranchisement say, well, this has always been the case. We're just sort of enshrining it in law. Um, the opponents say that this isn't the case, that this is uh, you know, a privilege that's being taken away from us. So it's really um, 1838 that marks that, that turning point in this particular privilege that we associate so much with citizenship. So what are some of the others? I mean, like uh, be a jury trial or being on a jury or yeah. bringing lawsuit or freedom of speech, those so these, things, that's which, right. the distinction between uh, free whites and free blacks in Pennsylvania at the time. Yeah, so these are particularly important in for African Americans because slavery is so such an immediate concern to them, right? I mean, being able to bring suit, being able to serve on a jury is important for anyone if you want to have equal access to the law, but it's particularly pressing in an environment where, um, if we're thinking about Philadelphia, there is a slave state 15 miles away. Delaware is a slave state, and, and you know, going further, slavery is only going to become a more pervasive institution. And so there is this constant fear, legitimate fear, uh, sometimes exaggerated perhaps, but, but real nonetheless, that um, legally free black Pennsylvanians are going to be imprisoned, accused of being fugitives from slavery, and taken into slavery without any kind of due process, right? Because uh, they don't have to be accorded this due process. So really, for the people who I'm most concerned with in this book, it is that kind of protection that is most pressing to them. The protection of the courts, the protections of a jury trial. Was the state government looking out for their interests? Uh, again, that depends on what we're talking about. And certainly, there's a great diversity within Pennsylvania. And even, you know, within, within Philadelphia itself. So in Philadelphia in this period, um, there is, for most of this period until 1854, the city of Philadelphia proper is actually very small. It's, it's what today we would think of as Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, the county of Philadelphia, what is now part of the city of Philadelphia, was its own jurisdiction. And even between these two jurisdictions, the government differed. You know, so that, that depending on who was in power in these different jurisdictions, you could expect different kinds of protection of the government. At the, but in many cases, it's very little support, very little protection that the government offers to free African Americans. Now you write in your book about um, about uh, kidnappings mm -hmm. and uh, fugitive slave law, and how would a free African American prove that he was free? So you could ask for testimony from people who had known you for a long period of time. Um, of course, for most African Americans, the people who knew you best and could best testify to your legitimate freedom are also African Americans, uh, which became problematic if they weren't permitted to testify. Um, but that was typically the way that you could prove this. You would come up with um, some kind of testimony that you had been born in these places. It was often difficult to come up with you know, paper that could show that you were free. So if you were born free, you didn't have a paper that says free? No. But if you had been a slave and were freed. That's right. Then you would have papers that, that demonstrated that you were legitimately free. Um, so. so you compare uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland at the time. So if you were a free African-American living in Baltimore, which was a, in a slave state, what would your life have been like? Significantly more constrained. Um, now, it's, it's important to note that in Baltimore, um, 
even though it's in a slave state, the vast majority of African Americans in Baltimore are in fact free. So I think something, depending on, on where we're talking about in this period, um, 10 to 1, 8 to 1, something like that. So the vast majority of black people there are free, and yet um, the laws of the state of Maryland are significantly more severe in the kinds of restrictions they place on African Americans. Um, and then the government is, is, in most cases, less even less sympathetic to the plight of free African-Americans than is the government of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Were free African-Americans in, in Maryland allowed to travel? Like, could they come up to Pennsylvania or go down into the South? So there is actually, um, if you can demonstrate that you are free, you are free to leave Baltimore to travel. Um, there are, during this period, there's actually a significant restriction placed on people traveling into Maryland. So that Maryland passes a law in 1831 um, stating that you, if you, if you move uh, African Americans, free African Americans coming into the state have um, a, sh a period of time in which they are permitted to stay. And after that, they could be imprisoned if they overstay their welcome. Um, in 1850, I think, uh, maybe getting the date wrong, there, there's a more severe law passed which says that no free African Americans can come into the state at all. And if they do, they are liable to be imprisoned and auctioned off. So essentially, they become slaves for a term due to coming into the state. So there's, real, there's a real concern that you know, some of these more activist free blacks from Pennsylvania are actually going to come into Maryland and upset uh, the system of Maryland. If you were walking around the streets of Baltimore uh, seeing African Americans in the street, could you have told who was a slave and who no, was not? No, absolutely not. And, and I guess that, that raises an important point, which is that some of these most severe restrictions are not always enforced, that, that they're very difficult to enforce some of these um, much more stringent laws because there isn't this kind of police state that would have enforced these laws. So in reality, um, African Americans whether they're free or enslaved, are actually granted significant liberties, even if the law, if it were enforced to its letter, would have restricted some of these liberties. Um, so yeah, so I mean, this is one of the things that is really um, liberating for someone like Frederick Douglass when he travels, when he comes to Baltimore as a slave. He talks about a slave in the city as like a free man elsewhere because you're given these liberties. Your master is, is out of necessity forced to allow you to mingle among free African Americans. You can participate in some of their civic institutions. You can learn things that wouldn't be available to you elsewhere. So there really is this, this sort of much more complicated story on the ground that differs a little bit from what we see maybe in the, the statute books. Well, why would a slave in Baltimore not have run away? Well, the the consequences of being caught are severe. I mean, and that's really the largest deterrent. Um, there is, so once you begin to travel, then people begin to get suspicious and look for evidence that you are legitimately free, right? So if you stay put, if you're traveling around Baltimore itself, um, you're not gonna be bothered, right? If you're going about your business, people are not gonna stop you and ask for some kind of evidence that you're free. But if you get on a train, well, all of a sudden, now you are under suspicion. And so there is, um, it becomes a little bit harder to run away. If your goal is to run away to the north, now, I mean, what happens in a lot of cases is that 
um, slaves had escaped to Baltimore and then never went any further than that. They just found uh, those who could help them live free and, and that was sort of as far as they went because there were these black institutions that could help you do this. So that was much more common. How well did Pennsylvania and Maryland get along when it came to the issue of, of fugitive slaves mm -hmm. and, and runaways? Slave catchers. Yeah, again, you know, this is a this depends on which Pennsylvanians we're talking about. So um, there is significant interest in Pennsylvania in getting along with Maryland. So there are lots of um, Pennsylvania politicians who place a great priority on being accommodating to the demands of their southern neighbors for all sorts of reasons, whether it is they want something in return or uh, later on there's this real sense that. Uh, the Union itself is threatened, right, that, that there are these uh, abolitionists and southern extremists as well who are trying to tear the Union apart. We as Pennsylvanians and, and maybe as Marylanders are looking to keep that Union together, and so it's very important that we get along. Um, so there, there is significant political support for that kind of comedy, that kind of, um, you know, compromise. On the other hand, there are significant numbers of politicians, and in this case I think are responding to uh, some of their constituents, there are lots of Pennsylvania politicians who maybe for moral reasons are concerned about being too accommodating to these Maryland slaveholders, but for political reasons as well. Right? This becomes uh, one of the very useful critiques that abolitionists make, whether they're black or white, of politicians um, saying that they are, the, the terms they sometimes use are bending the knee to slaveholders. Right? There's this, um, even white Pennsylvanians who don't care that much about slavery don't like the idea that slaveholders are coming into their state and dictating the kinds of laws that they can have and the government that they should have. So there is this opportunity to use this against slaveholders. Now, uh, you write in your book about the politics of black citizenship and talking about how uh, African Americans, free African Americans in Pennsylvania were getting politically active. How could they be politically active without a vote? Could they be influential? Um, it's difficult for them, right? And I think that's why in many cases historians, when they tell the stories of free African Americans and the stories of the politics of the 19th century, tell these as kind of disconnected stories. Um, because if you can't vote after all, how can you be politically active? And in fact, um, you know, some abolitionists, white abolitionists in particular, made a virtue out of this. And, and you know, there's a sort of strain of white abolition that says the political system is so corrupt that if you participate in it by voting, you yourself are complicit in this corruption. Um, and you know, some, some African Americans were sympathetic to this kind of argument, but I, you know, I argue in the book that most of them um, had little use for this kind of argument and were looking for ways to influence the uh, the political system that was excluding them. And I think the key way that they did this was that they recognized that as much as white Pennsylvanians um, didn't believe in full equality, they did not believe that black Pennsylvanians were their equals and should be treated as their equals, there was among many white Pennsylvanians a kind of sympathy, a kind of notion that there was, a, there was only so far they were willing to go. Um, there were only so many privileges and rights of citizenship that they were willing to take away from their black uh, neighbors. And certainly there is a lot of concern that slavery is expanding. Slavery is trying to reach its fingers into Pennsylvania. And so um, in this period, I think black politics takes advantage of this. It reaches out to what I call this tepid white sympathy. 
Um, not because they like it, but because they recognize that this tepid sympathy is better than no sympathy at all, that there are opportunities to appeal to these kinds of, you know, what today we would think of as racist white Pennsylvanians um, because the alternative is far worse. You do tell a story in your book about James Fortin, who is walking along the street and runs across as a congressman and mm -hmm. says, uh, I, I just took a lot of my white employees to vote for mm -hmm. you. Would you tell that story? And who was James Fortin and how did he come to have white employees? So uh, James Fortin is really one of the, the fascinating figures in, I think, early American history. He is this man, he's born free. He's an African-American man born free. I think um, his father was free, so he's not, you know, he's, he's somewhat removed from slavery. Um, but he's born into to fairly humble circumstances. Um, as a young man, he serves on board a ship in the American Revolution and is taken captive. And this becomes one of the kind of, you know, it could be apocryphal, but this is certainly a story he tells later in his life. He's given the opportunity to leave his country behind and become, you know, uh, a free man in in uh, Great Britain, and he, he, he refuses this. He stays a prisoner because this is his country. Um, after the revolution, he is, um, he's employed by a, one of the big sailmakers in Philadelphia. This is a maritime city. There's lots of sailmaking, lots of shipbuilding. Um, and Fortin really quickly proves his worth, and he really works his way up, and so that when his employer retires, Fortin takes over the business. So this is a really lucrative business that Fortin runs, and as you mentioned, um, he does so with lots of white employees. So he's got this kind of multi-racial uh, labor force. And uh, because of his, his, uh, his business as a sailmaker, he becomes this really wealthy uh, Philadelphian. And he becomes kind of, you know, even those who assume and, and believe that almost all African Americans are inferior to whites, um, they quite often make an exception. They say, oh, except for this guy, James Fortin, right? So James Fortin becomes... The, uh, the exceptional black man. I think, you know, this is, as a little bit of an aside, this becomes a, a great piece of evidence that those exceptional black people have never overturned racism, right? There's, there's always been the ability to make exceptions and say, well, that doesn't really change my general picture. Um, so Fordon's exceptional achievements don't change anyone's mind, but he does, um, as a result of this success, begin to take a greater and greater public role in the black community, and he has connections with white abolitionists as well, and he's got money that he uses to promote the anti-slavery cause. He's one of the, the chief benefactors of, um, in its early years, William Lloyd Garrison's Liberator. This is a, a, a probably the most important abolitionist newspaper in the 19th century, uh, published in Boston, largely supported by black uh, subscription, uh, including by Forden. So he really has taken on this really important role in the anti-slavery movement, in particular in Philadelphia, but really nationally as well, and yet he can't vote, right? And so uh, despite this, despite the fact that he is uh, he's one of the wealthier men in Philadelphia, certainly the wealthiest black man, he can't assert this, what we think of as a basic citizenship right, but wasn't available to him. And so, you know, um, I think for all sorts of reasons, he doesn't, he and other African Americans don't press on this issue of, of voting early on. Um, and yet, they do see a need to engage with politics nevertheless. And so, you know, he, he runs into this, this gentleman on the street and, and he uh, not only, I mean, it's an interesting moment because not only has he used his influence to bring these men who work for him to the polls to vote for him, 
he wants this guy to know it, right? And that's a kind of politics in and of itself. I mean, that sends a message to this guy. I may not be a voter, but I control a lot of votes, right? And, and so when we think about being political without voting, and this is a, a clear case where it's not just a kind of private act of voting, but it's the public act of making it clear what kind of political influence you have that Forden is engaging in here. Was, was there a black upper class in Philadelphia at the time, or was James Forden it? Absolutely. So Forden maybe is the richest of the rich, but there is, um, you know, Philadelphia is, and this is part of what makes it such an interesting city from my perspective, it is the city in the north with the largest black population. Baltimore is the city nationally with the largest black population, largest free black population, I should say. Um, Philadelphia is its, its sort of counterpart in the north, and um, there is the vast majority of black Philadelphians are, you know, working class or lower because of the, the economic opportunities that are available to them are extremely constrained. But there is this, you know, small but but not too small class of men, um, some of whom are businessmen. So there are sort of certain businesses that um, are open to African Americans. Um, but there's also, you know, we also see um, pastors who are a member of this upper class. Again, not exceptionally wealthy, but um, this, this class of black Philadelphians that we would think of as the upper class is not simply the upper class by merit of its wealth, um, but there's a sort of um, extent to which education and public spiritedness provides entry into this class. So we have some, some men who we would think of as part of this upper class who, who aren't exceptionally wealthy at all, but, but who play a leading role in public and are well-educated, and that becomes a kind of marker of their status in this class. Now, the subtitle of your book is uh, Free African-Americans in the Mid-Atlantic Borderline, 1817 to 1863. Why did you pick 1817 as a starting point? Did something happen then? Absolutely. So 1817 is this moment where um, concerns about what the status of free African-Americans is going to be in the United States becomes uh, contentious in a way that it hadn't before. So in 1816, uh, 1817, there is an organization that's founded in Washington, D.C. called the American Colonization Society. So it is this um, organization that is dedicated to creating a colony outside of the United States, in particular in West Africa. There are a couple other different opportunities, but West Africa becomes the focus of the American Colonization Society. And the idea is to encourage, by a number of means, free African-Americans, free African-Americans to emigrate to this colony. Right? It's, it's uh, on the model of the British colony of Sierra Leone, and this is what becomes the, the country of Liberia. So this is going to be the place where all of these free African-Americans, or many of them it is hoped, will move, removing themselves from the United States. Um, this is a, an organization that has tremendous support um, some of the leading men of the American uh, Republic are supporters initially, and even throughout its, throughout its existence, it has this kind of really influential leadership. I want to read you something from your book. You say, not only was the society founded in the nation's capital, but from its start, it held its annual meetings in the U.S. House chamber. Uh, perhaps just as important as the ACS chose its first president, Bushrod Washington, 
a Supreme Court justice and nephew of the first president. And he also, Henry Clay was a... That's right. And, um, you know, so there are other members who are not active, but who give their name to it. So Andrew Jackson is, you know, initially associated with it, though he's never really a colonizationist, and eventually he'll, uh, he'll reject it. So, you know, it's really important to this organization to establish itself as a national organization because it has its critics both north and south. So um, Southerners are suspicious because it smells like maybe the start of some kind of abolitionist movement, right? That, that's the concern here is, okay, you're talking about free black people now, but you know, if we start allowing this organization to grow, and, and in particular later when it's looking for government support, you know, is this a road that we're afraid of going down? So the, the fiercest defenders of slavery are extremely skeptical of this colonization society. On the other hand, we have, you know, abolitionists who are going to fiercely oppose colonization for the opposite reason, because it is uh, an effort to deny African Americans their birthright as Americans. Um, so really, they're playing this game of invoking these symbols, um, and later on they're going to really use uh, the 4th of July. It's going to be a fundraising day for the American Colonization Society. Pastors will give sermons in which they'll talk about how it's your patriotic duty to support this colonization society because it's this great national institution. And as you said, I mean, Bushrod Washington becomes the face of it, even though he's not really, you know, technically active in this organization. He becomes the kind of symbolic face because, you know, if there's one person who stands as the symbol of American nationality, as someone who stands above section or party, it's George Washington and Bushrod is this kind of direct connection to Washington. You say in here the uh, American Colonization Society attracted those who desired the civilizing of Africa and those who wished to purify the United States, those who sought to benefit American free blacks and those who despised them. So what, what would have motivated whites to, to support this? Uh, that's really the, the advantage and the dilemma of the colonization societies because it, it sort of claims to be able to do so many different things. It appeals to people on so many different levels. Um, well, that's great if you're trying to appeal to as many people as possible, when, but when it comes to actually doing something, well, it's hard to please all of these masters. And so you have, I mean, I, there are really committed opponents of slavery in the North who genuinely believe that this is the best way to end slavery who genuinely believe that there's no possibility of freeing black people and keeping them here. The only chance we have of abolishing slavery is to then create this avenue whereby, you know, the people who will become emancipated can move. On the other hand, there are legitimately slaveholders who say this is a great chance to get rid of these free black people who are the worst threat to slavery. Uh, they support colonization, or some of them support colonization as well. Well, you also, later in your book, in 1862, you quote Abraham Lincoln. You say the only answer he insisted was for free blacks to consent to leave the United States and settle elsewhere. Lincoln went further, informing the members of the delegation who met with him at the White House, that African Americans who refused to leave the land of their birth were selfish. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, you know, I think uh, Lincoln is, is a sort of perfect example of how colonization, I mean, it really endures. I mean, it endures beyond the Civil War. There continues to be a movement to, to colonize African Americans. But for someone like Lincoln, at least to my mind, there's been a lot of debate about how sincere Lincoln is as a colonizationist. I tend to think he's, he's fairly sincere, but I think he, even more than, um, even more than that, he understands the political usefulness of colonization. And that political usefulness is, it's a way for someone like Abraham Lincoln to be anti-slavery and yet to distance himself from radical abolitionists, in particular, 
abolitionists to advocate racial equality. Right? I mean, if, if you uh, if you look at Lincoln's political career, if we think about you know the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, Lincoln is constantly saying this needs to be a debate about slavery. Right? I'm opposed to slavery. My opponent refuses to say he's opposed to slavery. Stephen Douglas, on the other hand, says no, no. This is about how Abraham Lincoln wants racial equality. Right? Abraham Lincoln is trying to make black men and white men equal. That's the real issue. So um, one of the ways that Lincoln and those like him can kind of counter that is to say, hey, I'm opposed to slavery, but really what's best is for these men and women to leave the country altogether because we can't live together peacefully. I'm not for racial equality. Right? And so I think whether or not Lincoln is a sincere colonizationist, lots of people use colonization as a kind of shield that protects them from allegations that they are in favor of racial equality or, God forbid, race mixing, which is sort of the ultimate concern that these men have to face. How did the African-American community view the American Colonization Society? The idea of colonizing African-Americans actually precedes the American Colonization Society. So going back to the American Revolution itself, there had been various plans, um, certainly talk about how um, it would be a good idea to, for some African Americans, some free African Americans to leave the country. And in fact, there was, um, in that period before the founding of this society, there was significant black support, though not much came of it because there really wasn't a mechanism for doing this. Um, once this organization is founded, however, things really change very quickly. And it, and it changes in part, you know, it changes, I argue, because of the language that this organization uses, which is, harshly critical of African Americans, which talks about them as degraded, as incapable of being American citizens. Um, that really turns free black people against colonization. And they're also deeply suspicious of any organization that has so many slaveholders prominently involved in it, right? I mean, Henry Clay becomes the perfect symbol of this, that uh, even though I don't, I mean, I wouldn't, say that Henry Clay is trying to use colonization to strengthen slavery, um, he is a slaveholder. He's a, he's a plantation owner. He has lots of slaves. Um, this makes people deeply suspicious of his motives and the motives of his organization as a result. Now, you do say there's a, a gentleman by the name of Cuffey. Was mm -hmm. he African-American? He was. He was a uh, mixed ancestry. So his, his mother is, I think, a Wampanoag. Uh, his father is is um, from Africa, so he's um, so Cuffy is this uh, businessman, ship captain who had trade connections in Africa, and he became um, he's sort of emblematic of this colonization before the American Colonization Society. So Cuffy's vision for colonization is um, is never one that embraces the full removal of African American people from the United States, but instead really is trying to promote this idea of, of sort of movement across the Atlantic, of, a, of a, a larger black community that spans the Atlantic, that includes people on either side, that, that, that uh, allows movement back and forth. And that really is, you know, he's a, he's a man who himself has moved across the Atlantic quite a bit back and forth. And so this is really Cuffey's vision for colonization. Now, in the early years of this colonization society, he is an ally to a certain extent um, but really, I think he's kind of the last of the major figures who is a last major black leaders in the United States who is a, a real supporter of colonization. After the founding of this, this society, really, it becomes a kind of um, badge of honor that 
you are a, an opponent of colonization. It becomes a kind of, um, anyone who is lukewarm on colonization becomes suspect and it's hard to be a leader if you are lukewarm on colonization. What was the argument that the African-American leaders gave against colonization? So they argued that this was their, their home country, that they were born here, um, and that any insistence that this was not their country, that, that in only in order that they must leave it in order to become full citizens somewhere was implicitly a denial of their right to American citizenship. And so, you know, I, I should clarify here that there are some African Americans who take the colonization society up on their offer. So there are, you know, some thousands of African Americans who do travel to Liberia. Um, they do so because they see it as the best opportunity for themselves. Um, Black leaders, on the other hand, make the argument that whatever is best for individuals, your individual choice is harming our collective struggle to be granted citizenship in the United States. Um, and you know, they even go further than that and say you are helping slaveholders, right? That the, this organization is, is sort of secretly aiding the defenders of slavery. And so in giving your name to it and, and allowing them to use you, you are therefore helping slavery. Right? So there's this real um, criticism of those who take this opportunity to, to, uh, to find some kind of opportunity in Africa. Did uh, the American Colonization Society plan an actual colony, like with infrastructure and education and all that, or are they just going to drop people yeah, off? Yeah, yeah. So there is. I mean, life? that's some. There is some effort to uh, create a government. So initially, it's a colony. It'll eventually become its own republic. It'll, it'll acquire its independence. But initially, it's a colony governed by uh, this this organization with the support of the U.S. government. Uh, there is. There is, uh, there is continuing support for schools and for these kinds of institutions. In fact, uh, you know, in the book I talk about this one gentleman, Samuel McGill, who's from Baltimore, who is brought back to the United States to be educated as a physician because Liberia needs more physicians. They need doctors to take care of the sick people of Liberia. And so um, lots of colonizationists don't see it as simply uh, a one-time thing where you get rid of these people and then they're no longer our problem. They do see a responsibility to continue to support this colony. So it is a kind of ongoing commitment among colonizationists. Um, and in part, that's because they see this not just as a way to solve, solve America's race problem, but um, many of these colonizationists, as I alluded to earlier, are also committed to the idea of evangelizing Africa. So Liberia is going to do multiple things. It's going to remove free black people who are such a problem here and put them in the west coast of Africa. But once there, they're going to bring the blessings of American civilization and of Christianity to this you know, supposedly dark continent of Africa. You, uh, we talked about the, the life and the rights and citizenship of free African Americans in Pennsylvania and in Maryland. Did you compare it to other states? Were there other states that to the north that did it differently? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think as a general rule, the further north and east you get, the, the greater the rights that are being granted to African Americans. So in a place like Massachusetts, um, by no means would we say that blacks are granted equal status, um, but there is much, uh, so voting rights are, are much greater in Massachusetts. Um, eventually you're going to see integrated schools late in the 1850s in, in Massachusetts. Um, and there's certainly a much greater sense that the government of those, you know, eastern and northern states is going to um, vigorously defend the rights of their black citizens against 
the recovery of fugitive slaves. Um, you know, if we go to a place like New York, it's kind of middle. So in New York, they're, uh, they don't entirely disfranchise African Americans, but they create a kind of two-tiered system of voting where um, basically all white men are granted the right to vote, but if you're a black man, you have to own a certain amount of property in order to be granted that right. Um, so, so, you know, it differs. If we go to the West, it's actually much more severe. So the, the, the states of the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, have, have even more severe black codes. Um, at least in some of those, those states, you have rules banning the um, in-migration of African Americans. So there's an effort to sort of eliminate the, the black population altogether. Again, how these laws are enforced is a different question, but, but certainly these Midwestern states have much more severe, much more restrictive black codes than in a place like Pennsylvania. Now this may not be a fair question because you didn't really write about it, but could you, can you compare, do you have any sense for the citizenship rights for women, white women versus free blacks in mm -hmm. Pennsylvania? White women are disenfranchised, certainly. So in that sense, they are in the same boat as African Americans. Now, um, they are citizens in the sense that they are granted the rights of the protection of the law. They're, um, they're able to, to sort of enjoy these other privileges of citizenship. So in that sense, they have greater citizenship rights than African American men. Um, you know, beyond that, they don't have the threat hanging over them that they could be, because of these lack of citizenship that they're going to be um, sort of captured and, and placed into slavery. So their, their, their context is somewhat different. But certainly they, I mean, that shows us that there is this kind of expansive, uh, complex understanding of slavery, that, or not slavery, sorry, of, of citizenship, right? That there are these different classes of people who enjoy different kinds of rights, despite the fact that, that no one would have said women are not citizens, right? Everyone recognized that they were citizens. Um, it's just a question of what rights they're given. This also shows that for the most part, people, at least legally, voting was not a citizenship right. It was a privilege. It was something that was treated differently. And even if we look at the, the amendments that are passed after the, the Civil War, it's still treated differently. So the 15th Amendment treats voting as its own issue, as its own privilege. Um, the 14th Amendment you know, sort of finesses this a little bit. Um, so yeah, so I think you know women are thinking about white women is a good way of thinking about just how complicated this situation is. Well, another facet of it is uh, re recent immigrants. Now, you write a little bit about the Irish immigrants to the U.S. Can you compare the citizenship rights of the recent immigrants, mm -hmm. like the Irish, to African Americans who were born here? Yes, yeah, so I think this is a really important comparison. It's one that's useful to us, but it's also it was one that was pointed out by a lot of people in this period. So. This, um, especially when we talk about the 40s and the 50s, 1840s and 1850s, this is a period of um, really intensifying immigration, white immigration from, from Ireland. Um, that's particularly what we're seeing in the cities. It's also a period of, of German um, immigration as well. But you know, what's different about this period compared to earlier white immigration was that these are Catholics. And this is, uh, this is disturbing to a lot of white Protestants in what had been uh, almost well, predominantly a Protestant country, a country that thought of itself, um, at least many Americans thought of the kind of the Protestant brand of Christianity as an inherent part of their political liberties as well. And so when you have this introduction of these newcomers who are practicing this very different kind of religion, and in, their, in the eyes of many I mean, intensely Protestant reformers, Catholicism is 
is uh, slavish. They use these metaphors of the Pope as this you know, tyrant who is manipulating people. Um, so there is this real concern among lots of native-born white Americans in, um, in Philadelphia, and in particular also in Baltimore, uh, but around the country, there's a lot of concern about these immigrants. Now, this should be qualified in that there is never a disfranchisement of these men along the lines of what we see with African Americans. There is never a notion that uh, because they are immigrants, they should be denied the right to vote. Now, there is an effort in the 40s and especially in the 50s to lengthen the wait time that they would have to undergo in order to acquire the right of voting. Um, this doesn't generally pass, and it's never um, it's never intended to be permanent, right? There's always this sense, I mean, sort of the most extreme version of it is, um, and this is one, again, that's never passed, but there are some of these native-born uh, Protestants who say they need to wait 21 years because that's what a native-born person would have to wait to vote. Um, so there is this effort to kind of constrain voting rights in particular, um, and yet it never really is anything like what we see for African-Americans, and in fact, um, whatever the desires of some of these native-born whites, very quickly these immigrant whites from Ireland and from Germany become a critical part of the Democratic Party's voting coalition, right? So not only are they not disenfranchised, but they have tremendous political power because there's so many of them. And, and very quickly they come to by far outweigh the numbers that we see of free African Americans, and they become this really important voting block in, uh, in, in the big cities in particular. I just want to ask you this quick aside. The, you say the law passed in 1820 in Pennsylvania made kidnapping a felony punishable by a fine between $500 and $1,000 in between 7 and 21 years of hard labor. Were slave catchers who came and kidnapped free blacks in Pennsylvania and took them back to Maryland, were they ever caught, arrested, punished? They were. They were. Um, I guess as a little context here, this is the period of um, what historian Ira Berlin has called the second um, great migration, right, or the, the second middle passage. Um, this is a period in which um, there's a, a booming frontier in the southwest, in the states like Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, where Americans have discovered that they can grow cotton and make extreme profits. And so um, as they begin to move into these places, there's a huge demand for slave labor. Um, at the same time, the United States has closed off the African slave trade. So in 1808, there is no longer legal importation of slaves from Africa. So the question is, how do you fill this great demand? Well, to a large extent, it's being filled by the slave exporting states of this period, Maryland, Virginia as well. So we have these kind of older slave states that continue to be um, committed to the institution of slavery, but um, are also exporting massive numbers of slaves. Maryland is certainly one of these. And so when we think about African-Americans being kidnapped in Philadelphia, but also in Baltimore, you know, free black people are being kidnapped and sold not just into Maryland, but to Georgia and to Alabama as well. So there is this real incentive for people to, to do this, right? There, there are huge amounts of money to be made in kidnapping legally free people. And so, you know, we have these, I mean, this slave catching business is a fascinating one. It is, uh, I don't really go into this so much in the book, but it's a fascinating business. Um, it really is becoming kind of 
centralized in this period. There are these big firms in Baltimore that are engaged in slave catching um, and sale of these, these individuals to the West. There's a huge amount of money being made. Uh, but when you have that huge profit available, you're going to have an incentive to bend the rules and to, you know, often there's a kind of plausible deniability. Well, well you know, this guy told me that he was a slave, so it's okay for me to have captured him. Um, that's what's happening here. So um, there is this kind of blurry line between the, some of the people who are legally actual slave catchers, right? They're, they're actually being hired by people whose slaves have absconded to go capture them in Pennsylvania. Some of these same people are also clearly kidnappers who are engaging in, in sort of seizing people illegally and selling them along the same lines. Um, but some of them are captured. Um, and that's, you know, these laws that we see Pennsylvania passing, there are a few of them in this period, recognize this as a legitimate problem. Um, now, some people are going to say, oh, it's overblown, that it's not as big a problem as you claim it to be. But lots of Pennsylvanians, white Pennsylvanians, as well as, of course, African-American Pennsylvanians, see this as a real danger. Um, and so there are, you know, there are kidnappers who are captured and imprisoned. Um, and even beyond that, I think what some of these laws do is create a deterrent, right? That if there's a huge incentive to engage in this kind of activity because there are huge profits to be made, well, we need to make the, the consequences of doing so illegally uh, great enough to deter them. So I think even uh, beyond the actual numbers of kidnappers who are captured, and, and there are a number of them, um, there is this danger that is going to make people think twice before engaging in this. Did that cause friction between Pennsylvania and Maryland? Absolutely, because, uh, you know, Marylanders said, basically, this isn't a real problem. You know, these laws that ostensibly are about protecting black people in Pennsylvania from kidnappers are really about making it harder to recover your fugitive slaves. And, uh, in fact, there are a number of incidents where pretty clearly the person who was being sought was, had been a slave and was being recovered, and those people are being prosecuted as kidnappers. Uh, they're imprisoned and paying huge fines because they don't, you know, sort of follow the letter of the law. And, um, you know, what Maryland is increasingly saying is that this is unacceptable. You can't continue to, to criminalize, you know, these, these very slight deviations from the procedure that you've established, um, often because doing so creates opportunity for those slaves to escape anyway, right? So, I mean, part of what these laws do in their operation is give the accused fugitive time to basically find a way out of town and disappear from the scene before the, uh, you know, the person who's pursuing them can, you know, get all the warrants necessary and, and fill out all the paperwork. We could probably spend the rest of the time talking about this subject, but I want to ask you about a couple other things. One is uh, when you are not writing books, what do you do? So I, uh, I teach history in at Towson University, which is in suburban Baltimore. So it's, uh, you know, I, I have, uh, I did not, when I started writing this book, I did not realize that my life would become a, uh, a reenactment of the travel that I depict in this book. So I actually live in Philadelphia, but I teach in Baltimore. So I'm down there a few days a week. Um, it's a, you know, it's a state school. It's a, what do you teach? So I teach, um, so I teach African-American history primarily, but I do, early America and I teach the Civil War and I do urban history too. I'm increasingly drawn to the history of cities, um, which is certainly a part of this book, but it wasn't, I sort of didn't undertake this book as, a, as an urban history, but I'm increasingly drawn to the idea of urban history. 
Now the back cover of the book says published in cooperation with the Library Company of Philadelphia's program in African American history. What's the Library Company of Philadelphia? So the Library of Company of Philadelphia is this amazing institution that is very old. So it was founded by, in part by Benjamin Franklin in the colonial period. Um, it was founded initially as a, a lending library for, for kind of Philadelphians to have this opportunity to read material that they wouldn't have on their own. Over time, it's become a research institution. So it is a, a place where they still have this magnificent collection of um, resources going back to, uh, I mean, they actually, their collections have expanded beyond what they even initially had. So it's got this amazing collection of really old printed um, resources. And it's really one of the biggest, most important centers for the study of early America out there. So it's a, it, it attracts scholars from across the country who come to Philadelphia in part to study at the library company. Um, it's got this wonderful old reading room where you know, you're sort of surrounded by this feel of the 18th century, even though it's actually not that old of a building. They've kind of recreated uh, the feel of the original building, I think. And uh, it's kind of a, a center it has long been a center for the study of early America, and I think um, in the last few decades has really become a center for the study of early African American history as well. They, they had a, a curator there by the name of Philip Sansky who did just sort of yeoman's work in collecting these resources um, on African American history that really hadn't been collected elsewhere, and as a result it really became, I think has become a center of, of, that, um, of that field. So that's um, that's the story of, it's, it's also right next door to another institution, the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Um, so the two, two together create, uh, on that block really, like a center of the um, study of early American history. Uh, again, before, this is kind of an aside, but before we I run like out of sides. time, would you talk about Robert Purvis? So Robert Purvis is one of the most important leaders in black Philadelphia. So he is a, uh, he's a man of mixed ancestry and in fact, a lot of people mistakenly believe that he is white, so they, they look at him, he does not sort of physically appear to be black, um, but he fully identified himself as a black man. Um, and he's born into wealth, so unlike Fortin, um, who's a kind of self-made man, Purvis is born, his, his father was a wealthy, his white father was a wealthy cotton merchant in uh, South Carolina, and he moves his family to Philadelphia in part because he understands that this is the, the best place for his mixed race family. And, and Purvis is well-educated. He's, uh, he's a brilliant man. He is a fierce abolitionist. So he is, uh, he's what we call a Garrisonian abolitionist. He's a close ally of William Lloyd Garrison. And the son-in-law of James Forden. Son-in-law of James Forden. So he has all sorts of connections both to the black elite of Philadelphia, but also to the abolitionist movement nationally. Um, so he's a very, um, he's, he's involved in a number of ways in the abolitionist movement. He is, uh, he gives speeches, he writes eloquently, um, and, but, but in addition to this, this is something that we haven't really talked about, he is one of the leaders in the Vigilance Committee in Philadelphia. This is this organization that is established in Philadelphia. There are vigilance committees elsewhere as well that becomes the kind of institutional support for what we today would call the Underground Railroad. So vigilance committees are, in part, they're vigilant against kidnappers, right? So that's part of their job is to prevent the illicit kidnapping of free African Americans. But the flip side of that is that they are the institutional support for people who have run away, are looking to get further or protect themselves from slave catchers. So, so Purvis becomes uh, a leader in that movement 
which really, uh, you know, I think Philadelphia, because of its proximity to the slave states, becomes a really important um, place on the Underground Railroad. A lot of people who have escaped from all over the sort of the Upper South will come to Philadelphia not to stay permanently, but to move on elsewhere. How does the, uh, the it's really the core of your book, the, the interest in free blacks in their citizenship rights evolve toward a, a full-blown abolitionist movement? So I think it always exists alongside it. I think, you know, it, all of these people who are advocating for black citizenship would consider themselves abolitionists as well. And there's some debate about, you know, where this kind of disfranchisement of black people comes from. So some people are arguing that it is slavery that produces this notion that black people are degraded, and therefore we must do away with slavery if we're ever to, to acquire citizenship rights. Uh, there's another school of thought that says it is the denial of black people's citizenship rights that makes possible support for slavery. And so they say, well, we need to first work on um, bringing black northerners up to the rights of white northerners before we can focus on uh, slavery. In reality, these things are happening alongside each other. So a man like Robert Purvis is a, an advocate for black citizenship, but he sees that fight for black citizenship as a fundamental part of his fight against slavery as well. What became of Robert Purvis? So he would, um, I mean, he lived into the post-war period. He continued his support for um, black rights even after the end of slavery. So he continued his advocacy for equal citizenship. So there was, you know, this, uh, the book ends in 1863 because I argue that uh, this is a moment of fundamental change for this struggle for black citizenship. But, but uh, black citizenship is not won in 1863. So there's a, there's a continuing fight after the war to, um, to fight for the franchise, to fight for other kinds of citizenship rights, to fight for schools and, and the kinds of things we associate more with the kind of later civil rights movement. That is happening after the war, and Purvis will be involved in that as well. You write that uh, Robert Purvis remains suspicious of many Republican politicians um, he was worried about its members' moderation and willingness to abandon a more radical embrace of black equality. He said the New York Herald gleefully reported Purvis and other Repub Pennsylvania abolitionists' opposition to the Republicans, expressing hope that uh, it would lead to Lincoln's defeat. Yeah, you know, I think um, Lincoln is a useful way to think about the Republican Party because, you know, as we were saying earlier, Lincoln is distancing himself from radical abolitionists, right? And he does so... Uh, in, in what uh, historian Jim Oakes has called strategic racism, right? And this, this comes back to what I was talking about, why colonization is so useful. Um, Republicans like Lincoln, whatever their private convictions were, and, and it's always hard to get at what the private convictions of, of politicians are, um, whatever their private convictions, they recognized that politically black equality was a hard sell. And that if you um, were too closely associated with those who believed in full black equality, that that would weaken your ability to advocate for what these men thought was the real important battle, which was against slavery expansion or, or slavery. Um, well, we can understand the political justifications for that kind of a choice, right? I think it makes sense to me, but from someone like Robert Purvis's perspective, this was a story that maybe he had heard too many times, right? Too many times he had heard, well, uh, let's worry about these important things and we'll put aside your concerns about black equality. Um, and, you know, 
you can only hear a politician say that black people are inherently inferior and they can never be granted equal citizenship in the United States so many times before you begin to think that maybe he believes that and maybe um, I'm not going to support him just because we agree that slavery shouldn't be expanded into Kansas. Who are some of the other fascinating people you came across during your, this book? So I think um, the person who I am, I ultimately came out of this process of writing this book most fascinated by um, was a man named William Still. And, and I'm so fascinated that this is actually the book that I'm working on now. I'm working on a biography of William Still. He's a black abolitionist, and he becomes really the, the kind of acting face, the, the, the chairman of the acting committee of that vigilance committee I was talking about earlier. He becomes the, uh, the moving force behind the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. He comes from very humble circumstances. He, he comes from rural um, uh, New Jersey. He moves, this is the sort of classic story of the 19th century, moves to the city to make his fortune. I mean, he's really not coming to Philadelphia to become an abolitionist, uh, finds various jobs, and ultimately ends up working kind of as a clerk at the uh, Anti-Slavery Society and very quickly distinguishes himself and becomes this, you know, the face of the Underground Railroad. And um, in this capacity takes these voluminous records and he, and he really leaves us with the best records that we have on the functioning of the Underground Railroad. And so he becomes this really important source for us, but he also takes on other roles as well. He becomes a public leader. And I think that really, you know, in the book, that was one of the things that really fascinated me. We think of the Underground Railroad, and with some justification, as this clandestine organization that happens as secret. It's all about secret compartments in people's houses. He's keeping records, which is extremely dangerous, right? I mean, if those records are found, that's going to lead potentially slave captures to people who have escaped. Um, he keeps them and actually he would eventually hide them in a cemetery. So he found, he realized that, uh, you know, eventually that they were so potentially dangerous that he hid them. Uh, but he's, you know, he shows us that this, this act of supporting fugitive slaves in, in many instances is a public act, that the, the people who are on the Vigilance Committee, everyone knows who they are. Their names are published in the newspaper, their address is published because they want people to know where do you go to find these, these men. Uh, you need to know where to send your money if you want to support the Vigilance Committee. So he, I think, really embodies this really fascinating extent to which the operation of this clearly illegal organization is dependent upon the goodwill of white Philadelphians who aren't really that supportive of lots of the most radical actions of this group. Well, we will have to have you back when that book comes out. I'd love to come. Uh, we have been talking to Andrew Deemer. We've been talking about this book, The Politics of Black Citizenship, Free African Americans in the Mid-Atlantic Borderland, 1817 to 1863. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.